Well, take your Bible. We're going to uh, jump into the last installment of this in this series, Rooted, uh, through the book of Colossians, Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. So if you would turn with me to uh, Colossians chapter 3, starting verse 18, we're going to go through uh, chapter 4, verse 1, knowing that doesn't complete all of it. We'll try to pick up the, that last part of that chapter later, but that's where we're going uh, to be today. Uh, as you're turning there, D.L. Mooney said this, the Bible was not given for our information but for our transformation. Again, Moody said, the Bible was not given for our information, but our transformation. Transformed from the inside out. That, that a life that has been, uh, where, where Christ is Lord, if we're a follower of Christ, then followers follow. Transformed to live a radically different life. One pastor I was reading this week, he said it this way, Jesus is gloriously invasive. Jesus is gloriously invasive, invading every area of our lives. And what we want to look at today is Paul talking to us about the follower of Christ. Life is going to be transformed. That it's going to invade and it's going to change. It's going to impact every area. It's going to impact relationships. And he gets really, really specific. He, he helps with the rubber beats the road, transforming our homes, our marriages, our kids, our parenting, transforming relationships outside the home. And if we're working in our, as employers or employees, Paul is, what he's helping us understand is every part of our life needs to be transformed by Christ. Paul started in this letter, in those first chapters, helping to expand our mind as to the greatness of our God, the supremacy of Jesus, the sufficiency of our Savior Jesus. Paul taught us with sweeping theological implications of who Jesus is as our preeminent Savior. Then as a follower of Christ, if, if, we, if we believe who Jesus is, then that's going to radically impact our life. If we're a follower, we're following Christ, then following is going to mean we're going to live differently. And so what does it look like for us to follow Christ? Paul helps us in our relationships. Colossians chapter 3, verse 18, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Wives, submit. That one little phrase, those two words are something that have been weaponized by some, misunderstood by many, even a passage for individuals at times that have been a stumbling block to faith. So what did Paul mean? What, what did, did God, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as we see uh, what is written here to the church at Colossae, what, what, was, what, was, what, was he, what was he talking about? And it's not just a one-off statement because he says it in other places. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, to the church at Ephesus, Paul writes, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Almost the exact same thing he says to them. So what did Paul mean? That word that's translated submission is a word, it's important to know what it doesn't say. It's not talking about slavery. It's not talking about subjugation. It's a military term that means to arrange under rank. God's a God of order. And God has, God has a plan for our lives and a plan for uh, our homes. And so he has ordered or arranged roles in a marriage. The husband's role in the home isn't to be a dictator, not to be the Lord over everybody, but like Jesus, to be the servant leader. As we are talking about that, we need to remember that in a Christian marriage, 
that both the husband and the wife are submitted to Christ. That's the, that's the precursor for this. That's how this works is when we are both, both husband and wife, are submitted to the lordship of Christ. And what Paul is not saying, he's not saying that wives are inferior or that husbands are infallible. Wives, can we get an amen? <laughs> that's not what he's implying. Husbands need the input of their wives. God isn't saying that, that wives need to be passive. What he's saying is that there is a unique role, not a better role. Paul's helping us understand that a Christian home functions best when husbands and wives have submitted themselves to Christ and they understand and are willing to submit themselves to the role that God has given Think of it this way. Here's a good way to illustrate it. I'm lead pastor here at First Church, and we've got multiple campuses. We've got a lot going on on any given day. At the end of the day, I'm the lead pastor. So that means I'm the lead pastor, okay? So if there's something going on, I can speak into. I can say, this is what we're doing, and this is not what we're doing. But that doesn't mean that I lead like I walk around telling people what to do all the time, that I'm barking out orders all the time. That's not the servant leader that we see modeled by Jesus. As I lead, I'm under, trying to seek to understand what gifts this person have, has or talents that person has. And then understanding who I am and that, that I, I'm not so good at that. So, so we, we work together as a team. And that's what we need in the home. I may defer in some area of leadership because that person is better at that or is a strength in that area. And so we understand. And so there is that, that give and take in the relationship. And so we talk about ideas and we share ideas. And it's only rarely do I pull out the card that says lead pastor and plop it down and say, but this is what we're going to do. And so we collaborate and we see consensus and alignment one of the things that was helpful this week as I was studying this was the idea, just the simple idea of the husband as an initiator. That the husband is the initiator spiritually, the spiritual leader in a home, setting the priority of church and priority of, of, of spiritual things in the home, the priority of Christ and, 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 and who, who, what he means to the family, that, that husbands are, are helping with that and leading in that. There are times... In any marriage, you can go to Crystal afterwards and she can give you stories, but uh, where, 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 where you say things that you wish you could take back or there's, you cross a line or your tone or whatever it is, that you just have those, those intense, let's say, marital discussions where you know that you need to reconcile. And so what would it be like for the husband to be the initiator, the husband to take the lead, to go and to admit I admit my part of the issue as the initiator. And so that idea of the husband as, of, as the initiator is helpful as we think about this idea of wives submit. But again, like Jesus, that we are servant leaders, not the overarching ogre kind of a leader. Paul transitions to husbands and the husband's responsibility. He says in verse 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Again, the responsibility, as he's talking about husbands, is not just said in a vacuum. He says it uh, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Again, a similar thought, but he, but he takes it even to the next level as he, 
that gives us a deeper understanding of how to love like that. And I would just throw out that husbands, if we would lead as Jesus and we would love like Jesus loved the church, there probably wouldn't be much of an issue when it comes to what wives are being asked to do in submission. Just throwing that out there. Now, Paul says, tells us to love our husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Uh, you know, if you've been around here a while, that I love fried chicken. I also love crystal. Okay, in English, there's one word for, uh, describe, uh, there's one word for love. Okay, so I love crystal, but I love fried chicken. Can, you, can anybody understand that there's a little bit of difference between the way I love crystal and the way I love fried chicken? Okay, there are four words in the Greek for love. One is eros, the love that's that erotic uh, type of, of love, that sensual type of love. And then you have phileo, uh, which is like the brotherly type love, uh, friendship type of love. Uh, you have the, the uh, city of Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. That's where they got that. Uh, that, that root word. And then you've got <coughs> uh, storge, which is the love like a family. We have within a family, close friends, that type of thing. And then the fourth type of love is agape, the noblest of all the, 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 the ways to describe love in the Greek. Not based on worth or merit of the person being loved. It's a type of love that you, that you love even when the, there's not necessarily love being loved back. It's unresponsive it can be loving the person that is unkind or unlovable. You're even unworthy of love. It's love that is a chosen act of the will. How did Christ love us? While we were still enemies, still in our sin, Christ loved us. And the love, the, the, the kind of love, what, what do you, is it eros? Is it phileo? Is it storge? What kind of love do you think? Paul, what's the word that Paul uses of all the words he could use? Husbands, love your wives. He says, husbands, agape your wives. The highest and noblest of loves. Love her like Christ loved you, like God loved you. And interesting, it's written in the imperative, so it's a command. This is what we must do. Love your wife like that. Taking it to that next level where he says, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, so love like that. A sacrificial, over the top, willing to give everything type of love. Husbands. Also important not to miss the little tag at the end of verse 19. And do not be harsh with them. How we talk to our wives matter. How we, the, the looks that we give matters. The tone that we talk with matters. Don't be harsh. Some translations say, don't be bitter towards your, life, your, your wives. That, uh, and as we think about all of that, we probably could just pause, stop right there and have a time of confession. Right, men? Because this is something, and I'm sure that's why God said it to us in his word. Because it's something we can struggle with. He goes on and he talks more about the home in verse 20. He says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. That word that he uses, obey, is stronger than the word submit that he'd used earlier. There's really two parts of it. It's the, the idea, you know, we can say something as a parent and our, yes, I heard you. You know, the child says back, yes, I heard you. But there's a difference between hearing and actually doing it. And the, what Paul says is to obey. And so obey means I hear, but then I also, 
it requires action. Crystal at home, anytime she's doing her devotions or studying or whatever, she loves to listen to like instrumental music. Deep Focus, I think, or something like that. She likes to listen to it from Spotify. And so she, she listens to that. Now, now, it's not so she can sing along. It's not that she's paying attention to the, the song or whatever. It's just kind of background noise. Now, think about that compared to a fire alarm. When a fire alarm goes off, that fire alarm requires action. When I was in college, we had a dorm room, and we shared there were four of us in a, this pod, this cube, and so there was a fire alarm right in the middle of our four rooms. And literally when that fire alarm went off, you could not stay in the room. It was so debilitating, so loud that you had to leave. It, it made you, it caused you to, to act. Now we may or may not have because, you know, it's college. And so everybody wants to pull the fire alarm. And so all hours of the night, we may or may not have disabled the alarm. But that's a story for another time. But it calls you to action. And what's the difference between, between the background noise and sometimes as children, the, the voices of our parents can be like the background noise that we just kind of ignore. We kind of hear it, but we kind of ignore it. And that's not what Paul's talking about. What Paul is talking about is children obey. Like the fire alarm. When there's instruction, when there's when, when something is said that we should be moved to action. And kids, don't miss what Paul says at the end of it. He says, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. You want to please the Lord? Then obey your parents. Listen to your parents and then act on what your parents say. And then he go back, goes back to fathers in verse 21. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Fathers, again, I think we need to hear that. We need to hear what he's saying. Just like we're not supposed to be harsh to our wives, we're also not to weaponize our words with our children. Don't provoke them. Don't make them bitter, the NIV translates it. Or don't exasperate them, one translation. Or aggravate them, another translation says. Husbands, fathers. What Paul is communicating is consistency across the roles that we have as a husband or a father. The consistency that as servant leaders in our home, the vision of a godly man is a man whose tongue and his, whose tone is under control in his home with his wife, and with his kids. There's the final part of Paul's teaching where he talks about putting faith into practice. Again, in our relationships outside the home, this is what he says. We'll see the application, and we'll make some comments. Verse 22, he says, Bond servants, or slaves, obey in everything, or in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he's done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. Now, Paul is talking to the church in Colossae about slavery. Talking about the relationship between a master and a bondservant or a slave. An application for us in the culture that we live in uh, as thankfully in our, in our nation, slavery has been abolished, which is a great thing. 
And the application for us just practically would be employer-employee relationships. There's something I think that we can apply into those relationships. But before we get to that and how we could apply it, let's talk a bit about slavery because that's, I think it's important for us to understand uh, because this can be a stumbling block as well. And when we look at the history of the church, I think it's important for us to just, just recognize that as a nation, the church wrongly used passages like this to justify the practice of slavery. We all understand in the day, the age that we live in, the harm, the inhumanity of slavery. But in generations past, all too often, the church turned a blind eye at least, if not outright wholesale supported the idea of slavery. There was the idea in some quarters that, that there, were, there was a difference in races, that some races were superior to others, ignoring what is clearly taught in Scripture, that we are equally loved and equally valued as God's children. For instance, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 says, There is neither Greek nor Jew, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And we don't have, a t- have time to do this deep dive into the subject. If you want to talk more, if this is a stumbling block for you and you want to talk more about it, I'd love to have that conversation with you. But let me just say a, a few things. One is a general thought about times that we run across something that we're struggling with in Scripture. It's really important to always remember that, that like this passage is written for us, but it wasn't originally written to us. So we have to remember that Paul is writing to the church in Colossae in a culture where slavery was everywhere. It was a part of the economics of that first century. And so that was who Paul was writing to. It's important to remember that slavery is very different. The slavery that we had in the United States is different than that first century slavery. We don't have time to get into that. Slavery in that culture as well. Another point that's important for us to consider is that Anyone could be a slave. So it wasn't based on race like we saw in our country. It wasn't based on skin color. Paul is giving some teaching into the culture. He's writing to the culture of that day. He isn't condoning slavery, but he's speaking into what's going on into the culture. Now, there's another thing that we need to make sure that we remember, and it's this. That it's not God's plan or, or his will for anyone to be a slave. But that we live in a broken, sinful, messed up world. And slavery is one of the expressions of human brokenness, of straying away from what God's best is, of restoring his ideal. Neither in the Old Testament or the New Testament was slavery encouraged. Exodus chapter 21 verse 16 makes that clear. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Putting the cookies on the bottom shelf. Or what about 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, where in this definition, this list of litany of things, these are lawbreakers, and, it, and they're described. And here's some of the things that are descriptors of, of examples of lawbreakers, murderers, the sexually immoral. And then he writes, enslavers or slave traders. In the list with the murderers were the slave traders. So again, not condoned or encouraged. It's important to remember, God did not create the institution of slavery. He didn't command or he didn't direct people to have slaves. 
But he's working in the hearts of people to be transformed by Christ and then let that transformation change the way that you interact in the relationships. Read Philemon. There's a whole thing that talks about the the relationship between a a slave and a slave owner. So there's some good stuff in there. His heart is to move people out of slavery. So here's a big idea. Fallen, broken, sinful, power-hungry individuals developed slavery, not God. Now, let me just interject a little bit, and Crystal shared a little bit um, last week. Well, let me just, just remind us, too, that it was God moving the hearts of, 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 of Jesus-loving followers of his, like William Wilberforce, that, that he, as he moved on them, that they fought for the abolition of slavery. Now, there are a lot of Christians that did not stand for what was right. We need to acknowledge that as well, and to learn from their errors and not be a generation that because of the cultural winds and tides of the day gives in to what culture would say, but that we stand on God's word. And we're a church that believes and is transformed by Christ and lets that transformation transforms how we live, willing to stand for what's right regardless of what the cultural winds of the day are. Now, I think it's important, and Chris, I know I shared a little bit about this last week, but let me just share, just to remind you of the, some of the roots of the Church of God. The Church of God was birthed in the years following the division, following the Civil War in the, in the 1880s. And the Church of God stood against the cultural tide of the day. Most churches were divided along uh, around racial lines. There were white churches and there were black churches. But the Church of God took a stand uh, interracially and for diversity and worked hand-in-hand hand to plant churches, black and white together, planting churches. There are historical uh, accounts of interracial meetings in defiance of the prevailing cultural norms of the day, and in some instances, even the laws of the area. And Church of God congregations were burned to the ground as a result of our standing for what we believed was the scriptural principles that we're all one the unity of the body was, was, a, was a core teaching of the church of God. Our historians note that that teaching was attractive following the years of the Civil War. Black and white together at the foot of the cross, we're all equal, we're all one. Black leaders holding prominent positions in those early years of the church of God was birthed. There's one uh, female black leader uh, in South Char- Charleston, South Carolina, Jane Williams, who was credited with starting the church of God in South Carolina. And the other thing that we need to acknowledge for all the things we did well at the turn of the 20th century, we began to struggle in those early years of the 20th century. There were churches and there were pastors that caved to the pressure of the culture. And they called for the church to be divided again. And so we're trying to undo some of that, that tragic, those tragic decisions back in the day. But we, as First Church, want to be a church that lives out what Revelation 7 talks about, this vision of heaven where black and white and nations and different, different cultures are all coming together to worship together at the foot of the throne of our God. That's the vision. Let's get back to what the text is saying and how we apply it to our lives. And the application for us, as we said, is, is employees and employers. Verse 22, employees are told to obey as you think about how to apply it, to obey in everything. That we don't get to pick and choose what we're going to follow unless, of course, it's going to violate our, uh, what it means to be a follower of Christ or what God's Word tells us. 
employees are told to obey with sincerity and integrity, as verse 22 tells us. Not just, Paul says, and he starts meddling, not just when the boss is watching, but to live with integrity across the board. And then verses 23 and 24, really you could say that Paul is, is really encouraging us to think of work as worship. Work heartily, he says, to the Lord. Like, like you're working for the Lord. And then there's that final reminder in verse 25 that we are going to, going to be held accountable for all of it. And then he turns his attention to coach up employers, be fair and just. In the first verse of chapter 4, people in authority shouldn't take advantage of their position. What is he saying? To be abusive or unfair or to manipulate or to take advantage of people. Just like employees, employers are going to be held accountable. What's he saying in verse 1? You have a master in heaven. Paul reminds us of who our master, who our Lord is. Again, live out your faith. Be transformed from the inside out, whether that's in our home, in our marriages, as children, as parents, as employers, as employees. If we have taken the name of Christ as a Christian, then it matters how we live. So let me give you a couple of things real, real quick, some takeaways. One, our roles might be different. God's given different roles. Women, wives, husband, parents, children, employers, employees. We have a God that's created this world in order, and it's orderly, and so there are different roles, and those roles matter. The second thing, though, is that our relationships to Christ, no matter what our role is, that relationship is the same. Paul's talking to the followers of Christ, the people who have embraced Christ as their Lord. And notice all the practical talk about, as he's talking about roles, about him also, he talks about their relationship with Christ. What's he saying? Verse 18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Verse 20, children obey, for this pleases the Lord. Verse 22, fearing the Lord. Verse 23, work heartily as for the Lord. Verse 24, from the Lord, you are serving the Lord. And verse 1 of chapter 4, masters, remember, you have a master, the Lord. So no matter what our role is, our Lord is the same. Christ is Lord. We must submit to him. And so, no matter what our role is, we need to be in relationship, in submission to him. And then, don't resist your role or your relationship. As followers of Christ, we've been called to be in submission to him. And we must first submit to him and then submit to the role that he's given us. No matter what the culture says, no matter what the times, you know, supposedly call for, what does God's word say? Don't resist the role that you've been given. And so what does the scripture say? Wives submit first to Christ and then our relationship with our husband. Being careful to remember what Scripture isn't saying. Scripture isn't saying that your voice doesn't matter. It's not saying that, that, that you're a doormat. Your leadership in the home matters, absolutely. But you have a role. And husbands need to lead and love. Love like Christ loved unconditionally. Love like that. Unfortunately, we as men, as husbands, have abdicated all too often our role in the home. I just want to call you to be a spiritual leader, to be a spiritual initiator, to not deny your role, and hear me also, not to abuse your role. Because, friends, you will be held accountable. Children, obey. It pleases the Lord. Make sure you don't resist your role. Employers, employees, embrace your role as Scripture defines and outlines what that role is. All of us, no matter what our role is, must first submit in relationship to Christ. And the final thing as our worship team comes back up 
is that Jesus, really important for us to remember, is that Jesus never asks us to do anything that he has not first been willing to do himself and model for us. What do we see in Jesus? Everything that he's asked us to do, every role we see that Jesus was willing to do, he first modeled. He, he modeled submission when in Philippians chapter 2, it talks about that Jesus emptied himself, took upon the form of a servant, and willingly submitted his will to the Father all the way to the cross. He modeled, modeled the love that husbands are to have for their wives as he loved the church and gave himself up for the church. He obeyed the Father like children are told to do. He worked as unto the Lord as employees are told to do. He treated everyone fairly and justly like employers are told to do. And today as we conclude, I want to invite you before I say one final word to all of us. If you have never invited Christ to be your Lord, that that's where all of this starts. To invite him, submit to him, and invite him to be your Lord and your Savior. That's where it starts. If you'd like to do that, we'd love to walk alongside you. We'd love to help you in that relationship. You can text the word Jesus at 269-231-8692. We've got some resources we'd love to give you. We'd love to have a conversation with you about what it looks like to follow Jesus. Make that decision today. I'm going to pray for us at the end. And as I pray, I invite you to pray with me. And then let me say this final thing as we conclude. The hope for the family, the hope for the church, our nation is that each follower of Christ embraces their distinct role and asks, as they do that, the very important question, what does it look like for me to be transformed by Christ and to live out my faith to honor and glorify Him until the time that He calls me home? And where there are gaps between what the Scripture says and what my role should be, and, and, and as a transformed follower of Jesus... And what it should look like, wherever the gaps are between that and what I'm actually doing, today I want to encourage you to confess those gaps, to repent of those gaps, and invite the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit to help you to live without those gaps, no gaps between what you say you believe and the way you live your life. Heavenly Father, as we conclude today, Father, I pray that you would convict us, maybe Today, we have, we're here and we've never invited your son to be our savior. And so, Father, it starts as your spirit is working in us. It starts with us, God, submitting to your son as our Lord. And God, forgive us for we've sinned. Forgive us for trying to be our own gods and doing our own thing. And God, we recognize that that hasn't worked out so well. And so we submit and we invite your son to be our savior. Thank you, Father, for the forgiveness you offer for the eternal life that you give us in Christ. And God, also, I would pray for all of us as we think about the roles that we've talked about, the Scripture outlines, that God, where there are gaps, Father, that you would help us to recognize those gaps and to be people that are willing to confess and repent of that and to then change and to do some things differently, to be transformed by Christ. God, help us, whether we're children or husbands or wives, employers, employees. God, you've spoken to us. Help us, Father, to be moved to action. Not just your word, this white noise in the background. But Father, move to obedience and action. For we pray in Jesus' name.